Exodus chapter 34, let me turn you back to that passage that we read just earlier on. I seek the Lord in a wee word of prayer as we come to the preaching of God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we just thank thee for thy goodness toward us. We thank the Lord in this 40th anniversary we can, Lord, give thee all the praise and the glory for the buildings that thou hast given to us and the money's been paid. And oh God, we do pray, Lord, that I would help us ever to be good stewards of the tithes and offerings that come in. And I would bless our people for their sacrificial giving. I do thank the Lord for even a time later on where we'll meet around thy table. God's people remember the Savior's death. But oh God, we pray just now that I would close us in with thyself. Lord, take away every distraction. Teach us, Lord, from this passage. Give us, Lord, a little truth to hide in our heart. We pray, Lord, that I would meet with each soul, and that to that end fill us with thy spirit, with thy power, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Moses on the mount had just received a demonstration of the glory of God. And by God's own testimony, he magnifies that he's a merciful God, that he's a gracious God, that he's long-suffering as well, and he's abundant in goodness and truth. But men and women, you cannot take those aspects of his character without the other. God is love as well as light. There's the goodness of God, but there's also the severity of God. And, of course, that is not often spoken about today in modern-day preaching. You look at those words, you'll note that he who keeps mercy for thousands declares also that he will not clear the guilty. Though he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he also visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And wasn't that illustrated even throughout various portions of the scriptures of truth? You think of Achan. And Achan, the one who took that a forbidden garment on that wedge of gold hid it under his tent and he was found out and Achan was punished for his sin but along with him his sons and daughters were stoned. Or you might you think of Korah and again the sin of Korah likewise sees a fulfillment of this truth as the earth opened up and swallowed up Korah and their houses. The clear display of the two sides of the divine character It's also noted in the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John describes him as full of grace and truth. He's a friend of publicans and sinners. But you know, he's also an enemy of the self-righteous hypocrites. He who wept over Jerusalem, he was also to make a small scourge of small cords and drove those who defiled the temple out of it. In Matthew chapter 5, you have the Beatitudes or the blessings. But you go also to Matthew chapter 23, and there you have the woes numerated. We certainly read of the love of Christ. But men and women, make sure that you have a balanced view of Christ, because there's also the wrath of the Lamb that is spoken in the book of the Revelation. What does this mean for us? Why God is to be loved... God is also to be feared. Bearing in mind that he not only pardons, he also visits iniquity, ought to encourage us to be more careful about our walk. We have a little verse in Psalm 89. 
And the verse 7, just let me read it to you. Psalm 89 and, and verse 7. And it simply says this. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. And Moses had a right view of God. For I want you to consider the response that he makes to this revelation of God. It's a time or it's occasion where the Lord was to remember, remind Moses of certain matters. And first of all, you notice his prayer here. Moses wasn't unmoved. His heart was greatly stirred within him. And it's obvious by what we've read in verse 8. It says he made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. We probably aren't surprised by that reaction. He shows that due awe and reverence, unlike many today. He bows low before the majesty of God. Seeing the exceeding worthiness of God, he must bow, for he senses his own unworthiness in his own person. But that bowing wasn't because of some hopeless state. It was because he worshipped. It says that he made haste and he worshipped. One proof about how spiritual a person is, is to check their enthusiasm about the worship of God. Won't you let that settle in your heart? How much enthusiasm to be shown toward the worship of God. You know, there's something spontaneous about this. It shows how deeply he was affected. Indeed, it is ever the case that when God condescends to reveal himself to one of his own, that this will be the response. You remember that time, for example, when God revealed himself to Abraham? We're told in Genesis 17 that he fell on his face. You remember the time when he met with Joshua? Joshua was on his reconnaissance trip. He had crossed over the Jordan. He was looking at the first great city that had to be overcome, Jericho. And God met with him there. And what do we read? But that Joshua, he fell again on his face to the earth and he did worship. And when the temple was completed and God's glory filled the house, all the children of Israel they bowed themselves. I read that in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 3. and says, When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. It's important that we note the order here. We're going to look at a little bit of Moses' prayer. But prayer didn't lead to worship and then worship the glory. It's the other way around. It was the glory of the Lord that led to the worship and worship led to prayer. And do you see the prayer of Moses? He desired a reassurance. You look at the words of verse 9. He said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. Moses wanted to be assured that he, and by implication, the children of Israel had found grace with the Lord. What that would look like was that God's presence would be among them as they went forward. 
God had already told them that the day previous and the revelation of God in this mount would encourage Moses to believe that he was indeed a God of grace and his holy justice underlined how as a sinful people they needed God's grace. How do believers find assurance in these days? It is in his word. Men and women, you need assurance over salvation. You'll find it in the word. You need assurance over uh, uh, even a comfort. You'll find it in God's word. You need assurance of God's presence. You'll find it in God's word. You'll find that help in a time of need. For you see, there's also in this prayer the reason. What was the reason that they needed God's company? You see it in verse 9. Because it is a stiff-necked people. That's why. They were a stiff-necked people. Seeing God was merciful, long-suffering, patient, abundant in goodness. He was the one that was suited for a stiff-necked people. God had seen them in their idolatry to be such. And now Moses not only acknowledged the truth of God's charge against them, but he now turns it into a plea. Lord, there are stiff-necked people. And that's why we need thy presence amongst us. You know, dear people, we don't achieve anything by refusing to acknowledge our sinfulness. You just listen to Proverbs chapter 28. And the words of verse 13 says this. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Shall have mercy. Don't try to cover sin. Don't try to sweep it under the carpet. But rather acknowledge it before the Lord who is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But there needs to be repentance as was with Moses And he gives a reason why they needed the presence of God. It was exactly because of their sin. And the same is true of us. The more we see that this world to be a wilderness, the more we realize this world has nothing for our souls, then the more shall we perceive the need to have the presence of him, the one who is a friend that sticketh closer than any brother. And you'll notice his prayer was also for restoration. Look at again verse 9. He says, O Lord, let my... Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Moses had the right order. He begins by seeking God's grace. He confesses their sin and asking for forgiveness, and then he seeks that they be restored into that fellowship again with God. He says, take us for thine inheritance. And all the time, He's identifying with the people. You see, he includes himself in their sin. The sin of the worship of the golden calf had broken the fellowship with God, with their God. But here Moses, as a mediator, as an intercessor, pleased that everything might be restored again. And God, you know, answered the prayer of Moses, for God will not forsake his inheritance. How good to understand that he obtained his inheritance by the work of redemption. That's the theme that continues right through the book of Exodus. 
God saves his people by his grace. And we as his inheritance, the people of God this morning, have been won by the death of his dear son. He purchased our pardon through the shedding of his own precious blood. And you know there is the prospect that God delights him of his inheritance being with him for all eternity. The Lord prays that each one of his people might be with him where I am. You can see that in John 17. But let me just read to you Revelation 21 and 3. It says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. God delights that his inheritance, those he purchased through the death of Christ and his precious blood on the cross, will one day be with him for all eternity. Child of God, did you ever think about what heaven will be like in the week that has passed? Did you live your days in the light of the great eternity? I don't think we think enough about what God has purchased for us and what our possession is and what our inheritance is. Our inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled, and feareth not away. It's reserved for us in glory. But how little we think upon it. Moses, he prayed, and he prayed that they might have that restoration. But I want you to notice the promises here. Because the Lord was giving Moses precepts for Israel, but they're also the promises. The promise of miracles And revelations of his power. Verse 10 he said, that is God. Behold I make a covenant. Before all thy people I will do marvels. Such as has not been done in all the earth. Nor in any nation. That's quite a sentence. That's quite a promise. When you think that God had already showed his marvels. He had already showed his power. In their deliverance out of the land of Egypt. It was only God that could. Bring forth those plagues, plague of darkness, the plague of frogs, the lice, the plague of the firstborn dying, the plague of the waters been turned into blood and so forth. But but there were greater marvels yet to come, both in the wilderness as well as drying up the river Jordan so that they would cross over into that promised land. There was also to come the collapsing of the walls of Jericho right underneath themselves so that the children of Israel could go in and obtain the victory. You know, there's another passage that I love. It's the day when God caused the sun to stand still in the valley of Ajalon. The sun degrees moved back. And God did it so that Joshua would have longer hours to defeat the enemy in the valley. Only God could do that. And men and women, there is a fulfillment of this promise because it has never been done since. There's been no day like it ever since. Never has such a marvel been done. And that reminds us of something. Is that the God who by his power saves us and God by his power who keeps us has never exhausted In the terms of his power. His power is limitless. His power is unchanging. You know we feel at times. Because as God's people. We limit the power of God. Maybe even in our praying. 
And because we can't see it, and because we can't perceive what it would be like for many souls to be saved, or, or, or this work to be done, or that barrier to be overcome, that doesn't mean it's impossible with the Lord. And His power is unlimited, and it's unchanging. He is yet omnipotent, all-powerful. And you know, Israel and the world are yet to see the extent of God's power in time to come. There's just a little verse in Revelation 15 and 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven large last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. The world will yet see the great power of God. There's a promise also of what he would do to the inhabitants of the land of promise. Look at verse 11. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. They would be driven out so that his people would possess the land. God had already told Moses this. He's now repeating this promise. And in the earlier occasion, God reveals even how, by what means he'll do that. Can I turn you back to it? You go back to chapter 23 of Exodus. You look at the verse 27. There's three things that he uses to drive out the inhabitants. Here's the first one. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. They will be in fear. And you remember how Rahab, she had heard of what God had done even at the Red Sea and there was a fear among the inhabitants of Canaan. They'd be frightened into fleeing. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. So there's the first thing. Verse 28. And I will send hornets before thee and will, shall drive out the Hittite, the Canaanite, the Hivite from before thee. Even God could use the smallest creatures for his purpose. Look at verse 30. Here's the third one. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee by little and little. I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. By little and little, he would drive them out, one step at a time. Not all at once. Because if he drove them out all at once, the land would become desolate, overtaken by wild beasts. And you know, men and women, oftentimes that's how God does things in our lives. Our progress is best, often one step at a time. For the Lord knows each one of us, and too quick a progress can give rise to pride or to boasting or to irreverence. Are you conscious of the Lord leading you in your spiritual walk with him, little by little, step by step? That's often the best. Another promise has to do with their borders. You look at the words of verse 24 in our chapter. Well, I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. The inhabitants will be driven out. Israel had the promise of their borders been extended. The extent of that uh, land is found in Exodus chapter 23 again. 
And the words of verse 31, I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your land, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. There's the extent of the border of Israel that God has promised. That promise is yet fully to be realized. Now Solomon and under Solomon and David, the land gained much ground. Yet the day is still to come when God shall give them from the Nile to the Euphrates. And today that doesn't look like it sure doesn't. If you're looking at the news at all, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. In fact, the very opposite would seem to be the case, as the enemies are on every side. And you have the Hamas on one side, and you have Hezbollah on the other side, and Iraq's just there too, and Lebanon's there, and Syria's there. But men and women, the plans of Egypt, of Jordan, of Lebanon, of Iraq, it's not God's final plan. Don't you forget that. God will keep his promise. And shall come to pass. Because it's in his word. And before you leave, verse 24, you will note a promise concerning their protection. For I will cast the nations before thee, enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land, but thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in a year. When they would gather for the feast, we'll look at that just in a moment. The danger was that the enemy would come in and would invade the land when they're away. But God assured them that he would take care of the situation. God assured them he would guard the land for them. And what a lesson. There are many times when the flesh will seek to resist obeying God and we'll have this excuse and we'll have another excuse. But the principle that is taught here is despite any circumstances, despite any worries that we might have, that if we obey God, He will take care of us. Obedience is always compensated by God. When all is said and done, the obedient soul is never the loser. The obedient soul is always on the victory side and of God before us who can be against us. The promises. But you know there's also the precepts. Promises are interspersed with his precepts. They knew what God was going to do for them. But there was a reminder here of certain things, and a number of them has to do with worship. And that's not surprising. Because we've just considered of late their worship of the golden calf. And so God gives a reminder to them through Moses about their worship. And the first thing is there's to be separation. Look at verse 12. It says... Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. They were to be careful about relationships. They were to be careful about friendships that could be formed. They were to not make any covenants, or uh, if you read that word, you can read it as promises or agreements. They weren't to make any agreements or covenants with the Canaanites, for it would eventually lead them into spiritual apostasy. 
they would end up worshiping the false gods. They would end up turning away from the Lord. And do you see? There's a special attention made to the danger of an unequal yoke in marriage. Verse 16. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Marriage with a Canaanite would cause them to compromise their worship of the Lord God. They would be end up in exposing the false gods of the Canaanites and men and women, young people, that principle is still valid to this day. The child of God is only to marry in the Lord. There is not to be an unequal yoke as Paul warned the Corinthian believers and young people, especially young people, but not exclusively to young people. God knows best. If he says, don't marry in an unequal yoke, it's for your, it's for your betterment. It's for the best. He says, marry only in the Lord. And it behoves you not to put yourself in a situation where an unequal yoke could be very possible in your life. How many have fallen away? How many have fallen in their walk with God today and they're nowhere because they knowingly entered into an unequal marriage bond? God knows best. This precept couldn't be any clearer because God uses the strongest of terms. He describes a departure from him as a whoring. And so as to avoid a spiritual whoring, they were to oppose error in worship. Look at verse 13. Ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, cut down their groves. They were to take a proactive approach against false worship. There was to be no compromise with idolatry. When they entered into the land, they were to break down the altars. They were to break down their images. They were to cut down those places that were set apart for their false worship. We would say today, they were to protest against it. May our denomination never lose what it is to protest against error and sin. And we not grow weak. If evil is not opposed strongly, it will eventually corrupt. There must be absolute separation from all that would rob God of his rightful place in our hearts. And the same exhortation is given to us today, even from Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. For it says, keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Keep thy heart. Has the Lord a complete reign over your heart? Then there's another precept. There was to be the praises offered to God. Verse 14. For thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. They were told whom to worship. It was the Lord who's a jealous God who will not share his glory with any other. And that's proper for he alone is worthy to be praised. And to add to it, they weren't to make unto them molten gods. It took them back to the commandments. It reminded them again, for they needed off to be reminded. 
as they were guilty of breaking this commandment so blatantly with their idolatry. There are people, and you know they may get upset when the preacher preaches against sin. And they don't like it. Do you know men and women, it just has the same effect as God's petition here is to Israel. He's reminding them. There's either a repairing of our duty in those precepts or else there's a repeating of disobedience. And that's why the preacher must preach against sin because we're prone to go that way. And God knew Israel and he knew that they were prone for their idolatry and so he reminds them again who to worship, how to worship. You'll notice also here There's a precept concerning the feasts that they were to attend unto. There's three feasts in particular each year that they were to gather for. The the feasts of unleavened bread or Passover, verse 18. The feast of weeks and the feast of ingathering, verse 22. And you will see that with the Passover, unleavened bread was to be used. Leaven reminds us of sin. And sin robs us of our spiritual joy. And sin corrupts our worship. But especially as these feasts were a type of Christ, the unleavened bread meant it was an accurate type. Because, of course, Christ is without sin. There's no guile found in him. He was sinless. And thereby able to be our Savior and able to be our Redeemer. The same truth is seen in the exhortation that nothing of the feast was to be left until the next day because that would mean a putrefaction. Look at verse 25 of the chapter. It says, Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left unto the morning. God was making sure that in type nothing was done that would create revulsion of Christ. Yet how many still revolt, still reject the spotless character of God's dear Lamb, the altogether lovely one. There's a final thought about the first fruits. They were to bring their offerings unto the Lord, as you see from verse 26. It says, The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring unto the house of the Lord thy God. He is to have the priority in all our giving. It involves everyone. No one were to come empty-handed. You'll notice that. That's what we read at verse 20 at the end of it. None shall appear before me empty. It's good to be liberal in our giving to the Lord. You know, he will honor it. He will bless that. He will abundantly give uh, give it to us in return. And have we as a congregation not even proved that? We've proved it. And we'll prove it over and over again. If we give liberally to the Lord, He'll give us much more back in return. Malachi 3, verse 10, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouses, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. wonder what that would look like.
Let's not be miserly and give in to the Lord. Giving to God is only giving back what he has already given to us. Do you see the place where to give their offerings? Verse 26, it's the house of the Lord thy God. You give where the worship of God is promoted in truth. And maybe the best illustration of that is, as I close this morning, verse 20. But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not, then shalt thou break his neck. There's two animals in focus there. One is either to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. But if it's not redeemed by the blood of a lamb, it will see God's judgment. Its neck will be broken. Men and women, Christ is the lamb. You can only be redeemed by the blood of the lamb if you're ever to be in God's heaven. We are depicted as the ass, the stiff-necked. I wonder which is it for you this morning? One who owes everything to God's Lamb. He's redeemed you. He's washed you in His precious blood. You're sure of heaven. Or one who is yet in danger of eternal judgment. It's one or the other. And you know the message of the Lord is this. Son, Give me thine heart. Give me thine heart. Wonder dear unsaved, will you this morning surrender all to Christ for the first time in your life? Give him your heart. God's reminder. Trust the Lord will bless his word to every soul this morning. For his own name's sake. Number 60 will stand uh, to sing in closing. Jesus, thy joy of loving hearts, thy fount of life, thy light of men, from the best blessed earth and parts we turn unfilled to thee again. We'll sing the first three verses and then we'll have the benediction. First three verses, let's stand as we sing, please.
Lord, we thank thee for thy word again to our hearts this morning. Praying, Lord, I would, Lord, teach us. I would, Lord, help us to rest in thy great promises. Lord, that I would help us to be obedient to thy precepts. And, O oh God, that I would lead us on little by little, step by step in our walk with thee. Speak on to those yet not saved. O oh God, I pray there might be the complete surrender of heart, of soul, of life, even today. And they might turn to thee, even thy blessed Redeemer. O oh God, hear our prayer. Bless those that will remain. Remember those that will leave at this time. Go before them and beyond to each one. All that they would need, we pray in our Saviour's precious name. Amen.